This is Have You Met. My guest today is a former United States Air Force officer, weapons controller and missile propulsion engineer. In 1967, whilst commanding nuclear weapons at a launch facility, he was involved in a paradigm-shifting UFO incident. We talk about that UFO incident, organized UFO secrecy in governments, the risk of nuclear war, and the connection between UFOs and nukes, amongst much more. Have you met Robert Salas? So, Robert, tell me a bit about your military career and how you first became involved with nuclear weapons. Well, let's see, I started my military career at the Air Force Academy in uh, Colorado. I, uh, I graduated from there in 1964 as a second lieutenant, uh, went to flight school, and then uh, went to uh, work in uh, what's called weapons controller, uh, where uh, I worked. Uh, helping to train uh, pilots uh, fly intercept missions. And from there, I went on to the missile program as a launch officer in the Minuteman program. I uh, was on that for about three years. Uh, and then I worked in uh, the Titan III program as a propulsion engineer um, for the uh, program office. Uh, the Titan III was used... Uh, to put up satellites, uh, military satellites in orbit. Um, and then uh, I left the Air Force in 1971 and uh, went to work first for, after I did my fill of skiing in Colorado, oh, yeah. I, uh, I went to work for Martin Marietta in uh, Denver and then uh, Rockwell International in uh, Los Angeles. And then I went to work for the uh, Federal Aviation Administration uh, as a structural engineer on aircraft certification of structures, uh, aircraft structures. Uh, I did that for about 22 years. Then I decided to become a math teacher in high school. <laughs> so I taught mathematics uh, for about 17 years. Wow. Somewhere in the between there, I wrote two books on the subject uh, of my incident in Malmstrom Air Force Base in 1967 when I was a missile launch officer. And uh, later I wrote a book called Unidentified UFO Phenomenon, which covers uh, more broadly the UFO subject. Wow. Uh, I've spoken in uh, some 15 or 16 countries worldwide, uh, all over the United States, um, given... Uh, presentations at the National Press Club uh, uh, three times, uh, let's see, three times, uh, at least, uh, one in 2001, uh, one in 2010, where we, uh, some of us ex-military talked about incidents at uh, nuclear weapons bases, uh, and then in 2013, uh, also uh, uh, at a larger conference called the Citizens Hearing on Disclosure. It was a, an attempt to show what a, a congressional hearing would look like on this subject, which I'm hopeful for now that it can become a reality. Um, and then in 2021, uh, in October of this last year, so that's four times, isn't it? Um, I... Uh, gave a press conference along with two other uh, 
well, three other witnesses, uh, again, on the subject of UFOs at nuclear weapons bases. Uh, and uh, that's kind of been my life. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. What was your kind of favorite period of that, would you say? Like, uh, was it being a maths teacher? Was it that change of pace? Or uh, was it, you know, working with the air aircraft, airplanes? Oh, it was all interesting. It was all good. I uh, I don't know if I've got a favorite. <laughs> uh, uh, I I really enjoyed teaching teaching high school math. Uh, uh, it's uh, very satisfying to uh, deal with young people and uh, stimulate their interest in a, a subject that I love. And uh, yeah. so, uh, I, I guess you could think of that as my favorite. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, I'm sure the kids will be happy. Um, tell me about the, the the job that you said you did for, I think, 22 years, like something to do with aviation and the structure of aircraft. What, what was that? As you may know, um, all aircraft that uh, fly passengers or, uh, well, even, uh, uh, well, all aircraft have to be certified to Air Force regulations, not Air Force, I'm sorry. FAA regulations, federal aviation regulations in the United States. Uh, you, you probably have an equivalent in the UK. Um, uh, and so my area of expertise was the structural integrity of the aircraft. So we would make sure that, for example, they would uh, do testing on the structures. The wing, for example, uh, was a very severe test. Um, uh, tested for the loads that it would experience in flight and that sort of thing. So, uh, and then there would be modifications from time to time to passenger aircraft. I worked on those um, where the manufacturer like Boeing, for example, would come in and want to um, add some piece of structure or remove some piece of structure on, the, on an aircraft that's already been flying and we'd have to evaluate that so that kind of thing wow yeah i don't want to jump far ahead here because i do want to come back and talk a little bit more about your military time but that mm -hmm. job sounds like it puts you in a great position to uh to talk about like the kind of the more modern uap sightings like the nimitz and things like that with these extraordinary capabilities that are being witnessed you know like the, these acceleration the speeds the maneuvers do, is it, do you have any like kind of thoughts on, would it be possible for us on earth, on, on our planet with our materials that we know of to build something that can withstand things like that, the kind of speeds well, and G-forces? <clears throat> yeah, we're talking about G-forces in the in neighborhood of 500 Gs. Um, you know, a fighter aircraft may experience something like, uh, you know, five, four, five, six Gs. <laughs> But 500 is out of the realm of uh, understanding how, uh, you know, if there are occupants to those craft, how can they withstand those kind of forces? Uh, how can the structure of the craft withstand those kind of forces? Um, so all this is phenomenal. And then uh, going at high speeds, stopping in midair, reversing course at very high speeds by high speeds we're talking you know thousands uh of miles per hour um uh like i said i was uh, i worked in radar 
controlling jet aircraft, uh, high-speed jet aircraft for a while. Um, and at, at one point we did have, uh, uh, what was called a fast walker or a blip that was moving extraordinarily fast across the screen. Um, uh, and we had no aircraft that could do that because I was controlling the, the fastest jets, uh, we had. Um, of course it could have been an experimental aircraft, but in 1965, when, when we saw this, um, it was, uh, something we had no idea how, how that could appear and, and do those things. And the same thing in 1967, when, when, uh, I got a report from my security guards upstairs, uh, about what I just described to you, uh, lights moving at very high speed stopping in midair, reversing course, making 90 degree turns. This is your and, incident. This is the, uh, this echo. is my incident. Uh, this is what re was reported to me. Is it echo flight? The, the incident? We were uh, no, mine was again. Oscar flight. Right. Okay. Okay. Oscar flight. So, uh, we can go over my incident, uh, if you want, uh, I mean, I'd sure. love to hear that one as well. Before we talk about yours, though, I'd like to kind of just just do a jet, do like a few minutes more background about where you were at that point, and and you know, like your your situation at that point, and the the, the build up to it. But if this is one that's not directly related, do you want to do you want to do this one first? Well, I was just trying to explain to you um, uh, why uh, these objects could not have been produced on Earth. Yeah. Like you say, I've got a background in aircraft structures, right? And flight. Mm. And I've got an um, advanced degree in aeronautical engineering. I've got a master's degree in aer aero engineering. So I can explain to you that we, by we, I mean <laughs> the United <laughs> States, and obviously we had uh, the more advanced technology of most anyone in the world, on aircraft design and structure, et cetera, uh, did not have any kind of equipment that could do what that ob those objects did and what have, has been reported. And um, I was trying to explain why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I still want to hear that one though. So we'll come back to that in a minute, that, that echo flight that you're okay. going to tell me about 1967. Um, but I guess just to set the scene a little bit more, um, going rewinding to your military time, so you said you first got involved with nuclear weapons. How many years after joining the military? Well, let's see. Uh, I graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1964. I uh, started my uh, missile career at Malmstrom Air Force Base in uh, 1966. Okay. And that, you, was, you were part of the, the Air Force at that point, the U.S. Air Force Base oh, yes, Malmstrom. Right. Okay. And so, so about two years later... Um, so did you get any say in that or was it just like a case of Robert, you're going out to, to Maelstrom? Well, uh, the Vietnam war was ongoing at the time. <clears throat> it, it really was, um, the early stages of Vietnam. Uh, I volunteered to go to Vietnam uh, in 1965. Uh, but they didn't have a position for me at that time when I volunteered. <clears throat> and in the meantime, they advised me of this other program where I could get my master's degree. 
if I would become a missile launch officer. So I went through that program. I, I accepted that. Mm-hmm. That's how I got started. Okay. <clears throat> you don't, uh, you don't have much of a choice, uh, but in that, in that particular instance, uh, they gave me that option yeah. because they didn't have a position for me yet in Vietnam. So I never got back to Vietnam. Yeah. Anyway, probably a good thing. Um, but yeah, so so when they when you ended up getting this position, what were your feelings about it? What were your thoughts <clears throat> towards it? Did you did you kind of ever step back and think about the gravity of it, like the you know what these weapons can do and all that kind of stuff? Well, at that time, um, we were in a cold war, right? Yeah, and I'm a military man. I'm I'm there to defend my country militarily. And part of that was to man the intercontinental ballistic missiles that were part of our strategic defense. Uh, I, I had no feeling about that one way or the other. I, of course, I knew um, nuclear war would be horrendous. Mm. Um, so in 1967, uh, the U.S. and the USSR had accumulated... Um, well, I'll just stick with the U.S. The U.S. had about 35,000 nuclear devices, bombs. Um, that was the highest ever. Yeah. And the Russians or the Soviet Union at that time had a, about the same. So between the two of us, we had over 70,000 nuclear bombs. It was a pretty uh, dangerous situation even more than it is now. Now, my on the Minuteman 1 missile at that time, and this is open source information, so I'm not telling any secrets. Uh, the bomb itself had the capability of 800 kilotons of yield, kilotons of TNT yield. The bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki had about 20 kilotons. Mm yield and they killed over a hundred thousand people in each city yeah so you can imagine how how serious the situation could have been if we had gone to war with nuclear weapons yeah absolutely and uh, yeah it's, it's a scary concept isn't it really like you have to wonder which person out there would ever think it's in their interest to start a nuclear war but i suppose it's not always how it works is it people don't always think rationally and uh, have rational goals exactly um, exactly but it is a terrifying concept yeah if you if you look back in history a lot of the wars are started almost accidentally uh, mm. i mean not accidentally but uh, not all of them but some yeah yeah. And the uh, same thing could happen with the use of nuclear weapons. And right now we have uh, over nine nuclear nations. I think we have 10 now. Um, and other countries now want nuclear weapons, such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, North Korea has definitely got them and they're improving their stockpile. Um, so, and then we've got two countries, Pakistan and India, that are at war with each other. They are both nuclear powers. They have nuclear weapons. We don't know whether by accident or by intention, 
they would try to use them uh, or any other nation. Also, the more countries that have them, the more risk we have that uh, some of them will accidentally detonate or accidentally get lost or taken, let's say, by a, a terrorist group. Yeah. So we, we still have a very um, a risky situation with regard to nuclear weapons. Yeah. Yeah, that's a scary thought. I hadn't thought about that slipping into the wrong hands and yeah the more there are the, the more there are the more chance of that there is um right. how real and imminent do you think the risk of nuclear war is now what do you like what do you make of the current situation well uh, currently of course we have this um standoff <laughs> with russia yeah. and ukraine russia is a nuclear power and of course the west is we have nuclear weapons we have what's called tactical nuclear weapons in Europe right now. Uh, by tactical, we're talking about, you know, smaller nuclear weapons that can be carried on, on uh, fighters, fighter aircraft. Um, so that's kind of hanging over our heads, isn't it? Uh, nobody said they'll ever use nuclear weapons, but in fact, they are available for use. Mm. So, um, again, it's a very risky situation. I'm not saying we could have a nuclear war. It's irrational, of course, to have a nuclear war. But what I am saying is that uh, we have the weapons. We're uh, Both the U.S. and Russia have already stated that they're going to be um, uh, miniaturizing nukes uh, for possible tactical use in war uh we are supposed to limit our stockpile but uh right now with this situation we have with russia uh who knows uh whether those uh, those agreements will be adhered to uh as far as limits of stockpile uh, uh we need we need to seriously as a as a civilization we need to seriously work on this aspect of abolishing nuclear weapons uh, completely. Of course, we'd all have to do it together. We can't have one country abolish them. And <laughs> I just yeah. won't work that way. Uh, so somehow we've, we've got to make a concerted effort. Otherwise, we're, we're going to um, one day uh, reach a situation where those weapons will, in fact, be used. And um, all bets are off after that yeah yeah no i i i completely agree i just i just hope that somehow we can come to that you know get to that point eventually where we're able to kind of cooperate as a civilization as as humanity as planet earth and and agree to do that and nobody's gonna you know it would end up being all of the superpowers would just have their fingers crossed behind their back and have a secret secret stash <laughs> um the the cynic in me says that well, but it, it yeah it's yeah. uh scary times but let's let's go on uh, to your ufo incident your uap incident at maelstrom or the other one uh, that you were going to say about that you were going to mention a little bit earlier whichever you want to kind of bring up first in chronological or however you want to do it. Yeah. Well, let's, um, we'll talk about my incident real quick. Uh, but it, um, in 19, 
in March of 1967. My incident occurred March 24th, 1967. So I'm just going to interrupt you as soon as you've begun, which is just great, great interviewing here, isn't it? But um, so you'd been there three years at that point working with these missiles or like, you know, kind of. The no, I, I got there in 66. So this happened in a 67. Year. Sorry, a year. So okay. even less than a year. I think I got to Malmstrom in August of 1966. Okay. This occurred in March of 67. So. And it, did anything out of the ordinary happen between you arriving there and this incident? Did anything like bizarre? Well, we had reports in a local uh, newspaper, uh, people seeing lights in the sky. Uh, people did report that. I remember seeing little little articles about that, uh, but didn't think much of them. Yeah. Uh, okay. I was not interested in UFOs at that time. Uh it was not uh, a major concern or interest before my incident. Okay, so so back to March 1967 and, and Apollo's. March 1967, March 24th, uh, we were on duty at Oscar Flight, which is near Lewistown, Montana, about the center of Montana. It's um, about 100 miles from Great Falls, 100 miles to the east. Um, my commander was taking a rest break we had a little because one of us had to be awake you know for the 24-hour period we were down there um so i was in command of the facility uh first i get a call from one of my guards saying um uh they've seen strange lights in the sky like i just described uh, uh flying over the facility uh uh but they were just lights to him um and they flew very fast, stopped in midair, reverse course, made, making 90-degree turns, maneuvers he had never seen an aircraft make. Uh, he said, they're not aircraft, sir. I even said, you mean like UFOs? <laughs> uh, kind of jokingly. And he said, well, they're not aircraft. And it was, it was a serious report. I said, okay, well, thanks for the report. Let me know if anything more interesting happens. And I hung up on him. Uh, about five minutes later, he calls back. This time he's screaming into the phone. He's very upset, very uh, frightened. You could hear the fear in his voice. Uh, and this time he was babbling, shouting into the phone. Uh, not at all, you know, a normal tone of voice. Uh, and he's finally calmed him down. Uh, he said that there is a, glowing red-orange object hovering above the front gate. Uh, it's, I tried to get him to describe it. Uh, he said it was generally oval-shaped, but it, uh, he couldn't see very well because it had kind of a, uh, a gaseous substance surrounding it. It was hard to see, but and the light was very bright, red-orange, pulsating wanted me to tell him what to do. And I told him to make sure everything was secure and nothing got inside the secure area, fenced area. Uh, and he had, he said he had the guards out there and he said, uh, then at one point he said, one of the guards got injured. Uh, he had to hang up. So he hung up. Uh, and then I, first thing I did actually was look over at my console that showed the status of my missiles. And then I went over to wake up my commander who was taking a rest break, started to tell him about the phone calls. Uh, 
all of a sudden we get bells and whistles, klaxons really going off in the capsule, uh, indicating there was a problem. We looked over at the uh, status board, or status display, and the missiles were going from green, which meant they were ready to go, to red. Boom, boom, boom. They all went offline while this object was up there. Uh, of course, we went through our procedures. Well, we had two area, uh, two of the launch facilities where the missiles are actually located about a mile away. Um, had security lights indicator indicating that it was an uh, incursion in the, into the area where the missiles are located. Uh, so I had to call back up. First thing I asked is that uh, orange red light still there? And he said, no, it just flew off. Uh, and then I sent teams out to two of those launch facilities to check out the security. They called back and um, said they were seeing UFOs again, or lights hovering above those facilities and didn't want to go any closer. We brought them back. But at this time, of course, all our missiles were disabled. They were all no-go. In the meantime, my commander called the command post at Great Falls, Montana, at the base. And they, he, uh, after that call, he turned to me and said, the same thing happened at another flight. A flight of missiles is 10 missiles. So we had various flights throughout the state of Montana. We had 15 other facilities like ours, each controlling 10 missiles. So a total of 150 missiles at that time. Um, he said the same thing happened. And I thought he meant that that evening. It wasn't until later that I realized it, uh, it happened about eight days earlier. Mm. And that was the Echo Flight incident. I was at Oscar Flight. Echo Flight is another flight of 10 missiles. And they had a very similar incident to mine eight days earlier. So in the span of eight days, UFOs shut down 20 nuclear missiles uh, in Montana. And that's the story that, um, and, and by the way, that other officer, the other officers confirmed that shutdown, the echo fly shutdown. Yeah. And the other officer who was in command is still alive and uh, has uh, got his testimony on audio tape. Uh, also, my commander uh, confirmed our incident on audio tape. So I've got that. Uh, and, and I've got documents now after filing uh, under the Freedom of Information Act. Yeah. And quite a lot of that you've put onto your YouTube, right? In some of the videos on there. Yes. Uh, I, on my YouTube channel, Bob Solace. Uh, I'll link to it in the description as well. You can link to it. And uh, I, I actually at first made seven separate little videos, but I combined those into about a 39 minute video where I tell the entire sequence of events. Yeah. So the 10 missiles, they are not connected to each other, are they? Uh, the 10 missiles are independent. Um, uh, they are not connected in the sense that if one missile goes down, the others 
would also go down. So they're, no, they're not connected. No. Not like a set of Christmas lights where if one fuses, no, exactly. they all go. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm assuming you spoke to people that had been working in these these places for a lot longer than you, because at that point you'd been there for a yeah, like we say, less than a year. So I'm assuming you spoke to people and said like, as this ever happened like, have we ever had this kind of problem before like maybe without the ufo or it, you know does it ever does it ever happen where three missiles four missiles go off are there are there glitches are there errors you know what i'm trying to get at like what what are the chances of uh, no that? i'm afraid uh ben i was unable to speak to anybody about this after the immediately after the mm. event uh, so you were the, told immediately you had to keep quiet and not only told, I was uh, basically ordered to uh, sign a non-disclosure statement. Uh, yeah. That same that same morning that we got relieved by another crew, we were ordered to go to our squadron commander's office and sign this document. Uh, from that point on, I spoke to nobody about uh, this incident until 1994. Wow. So... A wow. span of 27 years. Yeah. That must have been hard to, to hold all that in. But before they made you sign the uh, the NDA, the, the 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 disclosure agreement, did they take your statement and things like that, like your witness account of what happened, or did they just not well, want to hear funny, it? funny, uh, when we walked into our commander's office, uh, you know, I wanted to know if he knew anything about what the hell was going on, and uh, he said no. Uh, it was... He was wise as a sheep. He couldn't explain any of it. And the first thing, the other general, the other man that was in the office was a member of Air Force Office of Special Investigations, essentially the uh, uh, secret arm of the Air Force, uh, <coughs> security arm. Uh, just shoved that piece of paper at us and said, sign here. Uh, they didn't even want to know our description of the events because um, for two reasons. One is they had already experienced the echo flight incident mm -hmm. eight days prior. They knew what was going on. Uh, and, and the fact that these objects were able to disable our missiles. And I'd like to go into that a little bit as how they might be able to do that. But, and the other reason was there was an ongoing investigation called the Compton Investigation. Uh, this was set up by the Air Force. They gave a contract to the University of Colorado to do a so-called scientific investigation, which has turned out to be a whitewash. Yeah. Uh, the Air Force just wanted to get out of the business of reporting to the public on UFOs. But at any rate, uh, for those reasons... Um, uh, yeah. they didn't need to hear our report yeah yeah that's wild isn't it that is wild to think about but yeah. yeah if we took our technology that we have now in 2022 obviously we don't know i don't know you probably don't know about the the cutting edge you know secret technology classified technology but if we take our non-classified technology and and you know the stuff really at the cutting edge of that <clears throat> and our brightest minds is there any way like would we be able to shut down those 1967 missiles now? Uh, I don't believe so. Um, let me just explain. Uh, and, and I get this from um, 
some reports we've seen um, that were sent to us under the Freedom of Information Act because the Air Force itself said that they didn't understand how they could do this. The, the, well, they didn't say UFOs, but they didn't understand how this, these missiles could have failed uh, because there was no damage to any of the equipment. And the failure mode was the same in each of those 20 shutdowns. Uh, this object would have had to send some sort of signal uh, through 60 feet of earth and concrete. We were down 60 feet. We had buried uh, sensitive cabling system, um, which was triply shielded from electromagnetic interference. Triply shielded. Uh, and uh, so this signal would have had to penetrate that go to each cable system separately for each missile and go to a piece of particular hardware in the guidance system called the logic coupler. Um, we had an inertial guidance system. We didn't have GPS at the time. So when the missile was launched, it would have to, by knowing its speed, direction, altitude, uh, various other factors, it would have to calculate where it was uh, above what surface of the earth. Uh, and, and so we had a computer on board, but what was needed was a stable platform or uh, which was had gyroscopes. So if you can imagine uh, a set of, of gyros uh, for each of the three dimensions, right? In space, three dimensions. Um, and those gyros were, had to have a stable platform. In other words, we had to know uh, this platform had to be a level. It was uh, it was a very advanced system. Uh, uh, but at any rate, all this object did was to upset that stable platform where the gyros were gyroscopes, and that was enough to uh, disable the missile because if it, if it upset that stable platform, um, the logic coupler of the computer system could not calculate where the missile was after launch. Mm. So that's all it did. It did not damage any equipment. Wow. So, yeah. okay. So you're asking the question, could that happen today? I, I certainly don't think it could have happened in 1967 uh, because if the, uh, let's say the Russians had the ability to do that, yeah, they would have been proud of that, wouldn't they? I mean, they, <laughs> it wouldn't they have been would only have 20. Told, told the world that, yeah, yeah go ahead, yeah. have your missiles, but we can shut them down anytime. Yeah. No, that hasn't happened. Uh, I don't think we have the technology to be able to do that today either. So what was the aftermath of this incident that you had, like that you experienced? So like you said you got transferred somewhere, you and the guys got moved to somewhere else. Uh, they did that to the airmen uh, quite a bit. This is a technique that the, uh, the air force uh, and the military ha have used uh, for incidents such as, UFO incidents where they don't want the witnesses congregating and uh, 
talking, mm. spreading the word, yeah. even though they're ordered not to. Uh, so they dispersed them, right? They dispersed them. I know a lot of them went to Vietnam. They were um, weapons qualified, so they uh, they were sent. A lot of them were sent to Vietnam. Um, I myself uh, was on missile duty for another two years, and then I was sent to Wright Patterson Air Force Base to complete my degree. Even though I could have completed it right there, mm. uh, but I was definitely sent to deliberately sent to Wright Patterson, the home of Blue Book, and that was 1969, just after Blue Book shut down after the Condon investigation that I mentioned. Uh, yeah. Air Force shut down Blue Book, which was the UFO study, Air Force UFO study, um, because they claimed that uh, the subject had no real interest for them. It was not an issue of national security. Of course, they didn't mention or investigate. Uh, mm. I mean, not the Condon in investigation did not address the incidents that I just described. Yeah. So they didn't even consider them. I read somewhere that the that Project Blue Book basically had any cases that were deemed of interest to national security uh, were basically siphoned away and never got to Blue Book. I think it might have been in Ross Coulthard's book that I read that, but... Um... Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, what we found out was that, in fact, um, uh, Blue Book was supposed to be uh, uh, also for public information. It was not just um, uh, just for Air Force, but uh, we found out that Blue Book did, in fact, have secret files, classified files of incidents they did not want the public to know about. Um, and so in, in my research, I discovered that. Yeah. And, and um, absolutely. So how were you feeling? Again, to go back to that, that day, I think March 24th it was. Um, how did you... like? how did you process that? You know, what? so this whole thing played out and then your shift finished and like your head must have been all over uh, the place. <laughs> I, I was, uh, I was looking for answers. I'll tell you that. Uh, I went upstairs. Uh, we had a little elevator to go upstairs. And uh, first thing I do, did was talk to that, um, that guard that, that I had spoken to on the phone First, he, he wouldn't speak with me. He didn't want to talk to me because he had been told then by then mm. that uh, not to speak even to us about what had happened. But I finally got him to go over his description again. He was very, very cautious about what he said. Uh, I was very upset because I, I wanted answers. And then, and then they sent out a helicopter for us told us to get on board and get back to the base uh, right away. And uh, right after we landed, we went to the squadron commander's office. And at that point, no more talking to anybody. Mm. The next morning, actually, um, I got a call from these guards, uh, one or two of the guards. And um, they begged me to come out and talk to them. They wanted me to discuss the whole thing with them, and I told them I couldn't. Um, I was obligated. I, 
that I could not do that. And that, that was a motivation later on for me to, to continue doing what I'm doing. And that is um, disclosing this to the world. Yeah. I think I, I owed it to them. I mean, yeah. What, what an experience. It must've changed your whole, your whole life. I yeah, guess at that point, it it did. Changed the, the whole direction. Um, so how deep does it go? Like UFOs and nuclear weapons, how deep does the whole thing go? Cause I, you've spent all this time since then, I suppose, seeking out and being sought out by people that have had similar experiences. Yeah. In my book, uh, my latest book, Unidentified, I list at least 12 or 13 other incidents similar to my own. Uh, uh, this other witness that spoke at the uh, in Washington D.C. recently, uh, this last year, had a very similar incident at Minot Air Force Base, North Dakota. Um, he relieved the crew where ten missiles were shut down by a UFO, and this happened in September of 1966. Um, but there have been many other instances where UFOs have come over nuclear weapons bases, uh, shown a beam of light. Uh, one in the UK you probably know of is Rendlesham. The, the, the Rendlesham case. And again, the UFO uh, shined a beam uh, on the weapons storage area that's been confirmed um, where nuclear weapons were being held, um, probably illegally, from what I understand at that time, the UK was not supposed to have any mm. nuclear weapons mm. on their soil but um that's been confirmed um and there have been many others um where uh again um uh ufo came over shown a beam of light and you're probably familiar with the uh, the case in near where i live in at vandenberg air force base where uh a missile was launched, a test missile. This was an Atlas missile. Oh, I was going to ask you to talk about this. This is uh, Robert Jacobs. 1964. Yeah? Mansman. Yes. Is that the one? Yeah. Mansman yeah, yeah. and Jacobs, yes. Mm. Uh, Bob Jacobs was a lieutenant. Uh, had a very advanced <clears throat> uh, video camera system that was able to uh, track uh, a launch of an Atlas missile and its warhead. Uh, and it was able to film a UFO flying circles, literally circles around the warhead and shining beams of light or sending beams of light to deflect the trajectory of this warhead. Um, pretty amazing. Uh, but it's a true story. It was confirmed by his commander, uh, Mansman, uh, in, in letters and in statements made by him and his wife, uh, uh, so, yeah, uh, there are many, many cases that have been validated. Another important case was the one with um, uh, Major Bradford Runyon. He was, um, he was flying a B-52 uh, landing. Again, this is at Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. Uh, was told to go around uh, not land go around to this over this facility and and uh, take a look and there he saw this object had landed on the ground he described it drew a picture of it when he landed 
uh, he was told by the commanding general that uh, uh, not only had a UFO um, d- uh, interfered with the security of one of the sites, uh, but had removed the cover from the launch uh, launch silo. There was a cover that covered the missile, right? About 20, 20 tons worth of cover. It had been lifted off and set aside by this object. 20 tons. Yeah. Uh, and the and the, and the fencing had been crushed. Uh, another important story. But um, like I said, I got about 12, 12 or 13 others that I, I list in my book. Yeah. And those are all ones that you like have spoken to people personally. And those and are the ones like I know about. And there yeah. are probably many that I don't know about because yeah. they're highly classified. The witnesses have been intimidated. Yeah. Another one I heard about, I can't remember enough to really give you much information right now, unfortunately, but I think it was a submarine. Um, and I think uh, a weapon got sucked out of this submarine, basically, by some kind of U.S., an, an underwater object, a submersible object that nobody really could identify. Uh, they uh, saw in the depths and this missile got sucked. But I'll have to try and remember the name um, and I'll send it to you or link it in the description. Um, it, it may be again in Ross's book, uh, In Plain Sight. It's a treasure trove of uh, of, of multiple different instances that's also where i first heard about jacobs and mansman's incident um mm-hmm. okay but yeah so what do you think about the like the face of ufos the like ufo stories roswell what are your thoughts on roswell because again that was a nuclear base right yes it was the only base in the united states or probably the world that was operational uh, with nuclear bombs because the uh, the outfit that was stationed there was the one that um, bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, yes, that is a very uh, well-researched, let's say, uh, well-supported case, Roswell, 1947. Uh, there were actually two crashes, one uh, about 30 miles from Roswell and the other more like 100 miles from Roswell. And they happened probably very one right after the other there were and and there were bodies recovered from both um there have been over 300 uh witnesses that have come forward uh in at least um and uh, these some of these have are written up uh these testimonies have, have been um uh, uh validated through uh, for example um uh, uh, affidavits, the, uh, uh, the man that, that wrote the first, uh, press release stating that the air force had recovered saucers. Uh, he's written an affidavit. He's now deceased, of course. Um, but of course you've heard of, uh, um, uh, Marcel, Jesse yeah, Marcel, Jesse, who, yeah who was the security officer um, and his son. Uh, and, and there are, like I said, about 300 witnesses that have come forward and told their stories, uh, validating that Roswell did really happen. Yeah. So, uh, and it's just a matter of getting uh, the Air Force to admit to it, uh, which they haven't at this point. 
do you do you think so you're convinced that there's a, a cover-up do you think that this is where the cover-up began basically do you think this was day one of the cover-up or do you think they already knew stuff um before then and there had been actually i i think uh the cover-up probably began in 1942 uh when we had an incident called the battle of la i don't oh, yeah. know if you're familiar with that uh this was in february i think uh, march of 1942 just after the start of our u.s involvement in world war ii uh there was um, a blimp-like object that flew over los angeles um was over parts of la and southern california for about 30 minutes at least or maybe it was more like an hour but um pursuit aircraft were sent after it Tried to shoot it down. Uh, the uh, uh, there were uh, artillery shells, some ten thousand, as I understand it, uh, fired at it. Of course, uh, again, we were at war with Japan at the time. We thought this could be a, a Japanese attack, and so we actually had military firepower fire at this thing with no effect. Mm. And then it flew off over the Pacific Ocean and disappeared. Uh, this happened in 1942. So I, I can imagine that the, this so-called cover-up, or the the Air Force at least, the military knew there was something strange out there that they couldn't explain, um, and they they kept that from the public. Um, but yes, essentially the. Uh, the major cover-up started at Roswell, after Roswell, during the Roswell incident. Because I guess if, if they didn't have anything we don't know about, I guess that's where a lot of the questions started to... It, well, some of the right. questions started to get answered and more questions started to be raised, I suppose. But So right. do you believe that this cover-up is largely the U.S. Air Force, or do you think it's kind of much wider spread do you think it's all the departments of military because i know it's very compartmentalized and that kind of thing and there's an article written by chris christopher mallon recently which i'll talk about in a minute um which relates to this um but it does seem like looking at things more recently like uh that well i'll just briefly mention his article now he, he wrote an article on the debrief a few days ago it's in kind of in february 2022 on uh, i think it was the u.s air force awol um on uaps and he, he outlined the extensive extensive radar capabilities that they have and, and just obviously the non-classified uh, radar capabilities um that they have and then basically just kind of pointed to the fact that we've had all these cases from the navy you know like 100 144 since uh, 2004 to now um that they've given they, they've opened up to and yet i think it's pretty much none or near none from the air force when they have radars in the same kind of areas and all that kind of thing so just wondering if you had any thoughts on that again i i'm i'm sure that it's probably not specifically just the air force that are trying to conceal this but are they kind of like maybe the uh leading the charge right. <laughs> uh no question uh even the army I uh, had UFO uh, reports of UFO incidents in Vietnam, for example. But yeah, this information, this secret information uh, is held. Uh, well, the Air Force really started their first 
the first uh, organized investigation, you might say, with uh, Project Sign and then Project Grudge and then Project Blue Book. Uh, so, yeah, the Air Force has been involved from the beginning. Uh, actually, the you know, in my book, I talk about, uh, or, or at least in my last uh, presentation, I talk about incidents over uh, um, Hanford Nuclear Facility in 1944 and 45, uh, and the they had a Navy facility nearby, a Navy aviation uh, facility, uh, where they intercepted UFOs over the Hanford facility, which was producing plutonium for the first nuclear bombs. So <clears throat> the Navy has been involved from the beginning. So has the Air Force. Uh, and so has every other intel agency you can think of. Mm. Uh, what I think is going on is that there is a uh, coherent group, a highly selected, uh, selective, um, highly secretive group, which I'll call the UFO cabal, um, that has been collecting this information in high secrecy um, from the beginning uh, and to the present day. And it's an international group. I'm convinced it's international because these incidents have happened all over the world. Mm. The earliest in Europe, I think, was around 1933 in Italy, uh, where um, a UFO crashed in Italy. Uh, but uh, so I think it's international. I think it's well-organized. Uh, well-funded, uh, even though it, they're probably using dark funds or black projects, however you want to refer to them. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think it's endemic and it's been going on for a long time. Our governments know a lot about this subject that they have not released to the public. And that's what my main effort has been all along is to try to get our governments to uh, reveal what they know. Yeah. And I'll keep pushing that. And no matter who you are and what you think, I think it's pretty much beyond debate that the governments know more than they've told us about these issues, right? Absolutely. I think that's just that, like, no matter how ardent the skeptic and everything, I mean, that's just, they've admitted that they, yeah, they've, they've admitted that there's classified pages of this, you know, the latest report that was shown to people that was not the part. So it's, there's just a fact that there's information that we're not told everything. So I guess the big question is, why do you think they are covering they again? Because we don't really know who the they is. So why do you think they or whoever is they is covering this up? I, again, I can think of some reasons, right? There's the obvious reason it could be for monetary purposes profit the same reason most things in this world happen right so that so they've recovered technology they realize the possibilities with it and they want to keep it quiet and and for themselves to to work on it and then put it out when they're comfortably advanced with it but then there's lots of other things it could be you know you hear things from i think tom DeLong has been one of the people kind of pushing the idea that actually they're doing us a favor maybe by keeping the information from us because it, the reality is so scary and it's going to mess us up so much. And, and obviously there could be elements of different things, but is it as simple as money or, or what are your thoughts? Well, I think uh, 
there could be, like you say, uh, ancillary reasons such as uh, uh, they're afraid how it might affect uh, religious beliefs around the world, for example. Or, but I think you you hit it right on the head when you mentioned money, the money aspect. <clears throat> Obviously, this technology is very advanced. Um, Whatever, the, whatever they have gleaned from recovery of craft and uh, bodies uh, could be very valuable in, let's say, uh, military uh, weaponry uh, of sorts. Um, so, and that has been converted uh, working with industry, right? Aerospace industries, mm. uh, such as Lockheed, for example. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's a greed element, element of money-making opportunity, greed. Um, then there's the element of the fact that these secrets can be used as bargaining chips between countries, right? Mm -hmm. If I know something that you'd like to know about what we've discovered uh, about certain materials, uh, we could maybe have a bargain while you tell me this other secret that you have that I'd like to know. So it could be used as bargaining chips. Um, yes, there's probably a real concern about how this would, how this knowledge or what, what is known about these things would disrupt um, uh, economies, for example, and religious beliefs, what impact would it have socially um, I think those are kind of cop outs because I think the public can deal with those things <clears throat> if we had the facts. Yeah. Uh, and of course, democracies are based on public knowledge of what their governments are doing. Um, if we if we allow them to just keep these secrets to themselves, uh, I don't agree with Tom DeLong that uh, they're doing us any kind of a favor. If we allow them to keep these secrets, we're allowing corruption in government. Basically, in a democratic form of government, we're allowing corruption to thrive. And uh, uh, the best way democracy works is if the public knows what's going on. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um... I guess the, the the other question, not that you can answer this, but it's just like a kind of a hypothetical question is, is even the people that do know, you know, the most of all of us, all of the, this group of, you know, this, this elite group of humans that know mm -hmm. the most about this topic more than anybody else, even them, I wonder how much they know, you know, I wonder how much the most well-educated person on this topic actually knows no. for a fact, like, do do we know, you know, exactly what and what these beings if there are beings in the in the craft what they are where they're from um and again like what intentions and, is a huge one as well isn't it like why are they coming here and and it yeah. comes back to nukes i didn't really ask you that but why are they so focused on nuclear weapons as well and and things like that well i i can give you my answer or what i think is going on with the nuclear issue and that is they're trying to help us uh, come to the full realization as we started our show that we must abolish nuclear weapons. Mm. Uh, I don't see any future for humanity 
basically, if we maintain the status quo with regard to nukes, <clears throat> the problem is just going to get worse. Mm. And the risk will get higher that we have nuclear war and nuclear war will be uh, devastating all of humanity. So I think they're trying to help us come to that realization by these incidents, by these demonstrations that they've given us. Um, and your other question was, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I got lost track. I think I was just hypothetically kind of asking, you know, why and why and why are they here and, and all that kind oh, of thing. Why? Um, yeah, well, they're here. Uh, you know, I think there's no, question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's no question in my mind, at least, that they are here, that these, these are extraterrestrial entities that are here. Um, and you're right, I don't think our, even the cabal, this UFO cabal, has all the answers. I don't think they do. We, as humanity, if we're, if we're going to um, have dealings with these extraterrestrials properly, it should be all of civil, human civilization dealing with them. Uh, because right now, you know, we've got in the air, uh, U.S., now we've got something called the Space Force, right? And so <laughs> how do they look at this? Obviously, they're the enemy. They've got uh, all this great military capability. Uh, there must be the enemy. So we don't want our military deciding who our enemies are going to be. Mm. We need to decide that. Yeah. Public should decide that. Uh, and, and that's what I mean by corruption in government. I That's think a good important. rule of thumb on that is that anybody that profits from something shouldn't really be the one deciding if we do that, you know, like, exactly, uh, yeah. and, and that you even see it on the mainstream news and stuff sometimes where a channel will have on somebody to talk <clears throat> about war and it's literally somebody that profits from war. And it's like, okay, <laughs> this is the best person we could find to talk about this. This is the most neutral uh, voice. Um, but yeah, yeah you're, you're very right that we don't want, yeah, because it, it this could be such, if, I mean, again, if, if there are extraterrestrials here, there some some aliens from somewhere else. Well, again, there's so many questions there, but we we best to tread lightly. You know, we're best to be careful here and and proceed with caution. And yeah, I don't, it depends who's in charge, I guess, as to what approach we would take. Um, right. Like, how what would you do in uh, if you were in in this position? Say, to, if it was some on some level your decision, like, should we be you know, trying to communicate? Should we be worried? Should we, it's kind of the two extremes would be pointing a gun or holding out a hand, I guess. But like, what, how do we proceed here? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I've got a, I've got a painting in my study here. And the painting was done by um, C.M. Russell, who is a, uh, painted Native Americans um, in in the West. Uh, at any rate, it shows uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition meeting the Flathead Indians in Montana. <coughs> excuse me, around 1804. And the reason I, I love this painting is because 
we find ourselves in the same kind of situation if we're going to be meeting up with ET, right? Mm. Um, here we've got a situation where we know they're an advanced race technologically. We don't know much about what their ethics are or their morality or their religion or they want to enslave us or whether they want to be friends, etc. So you're right, we have to tread lightly and cautiously. But my point is it has to be a decision made by humanity as a whole and not by a few elites. Uh, I can't give you any answers as to who they are, what they are, what they're after. Uh, I know that the abduction phenomenon is real. I'm, I know that for sure. I know that uh, they are most likely producing hybrids. In other words, uh, part human, part them. For what purpose? I don't know. Uh, but this is being done. Uh where do you hear about the, the hybrid they, stuff? I, I have heard that other places. Where did you hear that, though? Uh, well, again, there's a lot of testimony from people who have experienced abductions uh, where they have seen hybrid children on board craft. Mm. They've been introduced to them as their offspring. Um <laughs> uh, there is a lot of testimony to that effect. So there's no question in my mind that they are abducting, probably have abducted in the millions of people. Um, I don't know how many hybrid children they produced or for what purpose, uh, but it is going on. Uh, they have also done cattle mutilations. I was gonna ask you about that actually, yeah. That is absolutely certain. Uh, uh, many there have been so many reports all over the world, by the way, not just in the U.S., uh, of them mutilating cattle. For what purpose? I don't know. Mm. I mean, we can all speculate, but uh, so, like I said, uh, someone in government in this cabal is evaluating or has evaluated these sorts of things the abductions, the mutilations, you can throw in Bigfoot, <laughs> other things. Um, and they know a lot more than we know because of the resources and, and the validation or, and the validity of the incidents. So they know more about that than we do. Yeah. We, the public, uh, but we have a right to know what they know yeah. uh, because we're dealing with this obviously this is affecting real people yeah and i mean we're all adults right everybody that is an well, adult is an adult and they you know nobody has in my opinion at least i nobody has a right to decide as as a standalone person a non-elected official even nobody has the right to just say oh yeah we're not going to tell them that you know we're... right nobody has that right they, they even shouldn't. if it's scary and even if it might change how I live my life and, and even if it might change how I think, 
you just you can't just not tell me because it suits your interests right <laughs> exactly it's, exactly yeah. yeah yeah it's scary um in terms of the the ufos and the nukes again and and you saying that you think it's that they're trying to you know dissuade us from using nuclear weapons do you think that firstly do you think that applies to all types of nuclear do you think that applies to power like i had my friend i, I told him i was going to be talking to you and he was interested to to, to ask you that basically whether whether it's just focused on nuclear weapons or if it's also that they have any interest in nuclear power stations. Funnily enough, the same day he asked me that, I did see mentioned somewhere, I didn't manage to read all about it, but I did see something linking the two, a power station and, and a UFOs. But do you know much about that? Uh, yeah, there have been many, many reports uh, of uh, UFOs seen over nuclear power plants. In fact, um, there was an article in Pravda, the Russian newspaper, um, stating that UFOs were seen over the um, uh, Chernobyl power plant before and after uh, the incident at Chernobyl. Uh, this was a write-up in Pravda. But uh, anyway, uh, I think, again, as you probably know, nuclear power plants um, produce nuclear waste. And that nuclear waste can be weaponized. If it's taken, it can be enriched and weaponized. So there again, we have that risk. Not only that, but we have the radiation uh, uh, results of uh, radiation from explosions such as what happened at Chernobyl and Fukushima, yeah. right? Uh, very dangerous. We don't know how dangerous it is, uh, but obviously uh, no good can come from radioactive uh, waste uh, getting into the oceans and uh, going all over. Uh, and the same thing happened over the UK, as a matter of fact, this radioactive cloud flew over the United Kingdom and Western Europe, didn't it? And uh, probably affected the rate of cancer in, in those areas. Mm. Um, so yes, also very dangerous. Wow. Yeah. Because I, I remember I, I mentioned to you I had Ralph Blumenthal on this this podcast and we talked about obviously John Mack, Dr. John Mack, because he wrote the, his biography. And mm -hmm. I know that John Mack confirmed that a lot of the experiences that he spoke to, the people that claimed they'd been abducted, said that the extraterrestrials, the beings, whatever, were trying to pass them information to say that, yeah, we're, we're killing our planet and it, we need to stop, you know, nuclear, you know, power or weapons, whatever. We need to change our ways. And that was something he reported a lot at Aerial School as well. I, I'm sure you're familiar with Aerial School um, in Zimbabwe. Yeah. And again, yeah. I, he, he went out and spoke to the kids. And again, I believe that that was the messaging that they were trying to pass to these kids was that, well, yeah, we need to stop what we're doing with, with just destroying the planet on the whole. But but I think there was always that kind of edge to it with, with the nuclear right. stuff as well. And John Mack actually was like, he would protest against these things. He would go and like walk and do stuff at nuclear sites and things like that um so yeah it, it does seem to be in inextricably connected doesn't it even the more modern things with the nimitz like they they're they have nuclear capabilities right right well yeah nuclear powered uh 
UK power stuff. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So again, uh, you know, these things are connected. If, for example, there were open hearings in Congress, the U.S. Congress, and some of us witnesses came forward, started speaking about these things openly, that would go a long way to uh, getting people to start asking more questions. By people, I mean, you know, uh, government officials to start asking more questions of agencies like the U.S. Air Force as to what they've been hiding over the years and why. Uh, we need to have a huge public discussion about this whole subject because everything is connected here. The, the nu mm. nuclear energy, nuclear power, nuclear weapons issue also relates to energy production, which relates to global warming, uh, etc. It All these problems are interconnected, but they basically... Uh, the question we want to have answered, especially if we have children, grandchildren, will we have a planet for them to live on? <clears throat> what will be their future? And yeah. we, we want to answer that question. So Yeah. Yeah, right now it doesn't seem like a great answer that we have, does it? <laughs> no, it's uh, it's worrying. It's it's scary to think the state of the, what the state of the planet could be, and and even as little as what like twenty, thirty years, um, right. forty, fifty, and and yeah, I think it's going to be a very telling time for humanity the next couple of hundred. If we can survive that, then we might be the next guys flying around in unidentified flying objects in a different star system. Right. Um, but I think the next couple of hundred are going to be very challenging. Right. And Let me... so, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry, go on. Uh, I was just yeah. going to say, so we're, we're also trying to explore space, right? Yeah. We want to set up uh, facilities on the moon. We want to explore the Mars. We want to send people to, uh, other planets, other star systems. Are we ready to do that? I mean, are we going to take our earthly problems with us? Uh, let's say to the moon. What if China has their own base on the moon? Uh, Russia has theirs. We have ours. Are we going to point weapons at each other there? Yeah. So, again, this this is all connected. And that's why it's important that we have this discussion openly. Now, I was also going to mention there, there is a, um, an effort going on right now uh, to set up an office or propose to set up an office in the United Nations mm. uh, on the UFO subject or UAP subject. Um, and hopefully that'll that'll uh, be take fruition uh, sometime later this year. But that effort is also taking place. Yeah. Um, why do you think that people like the the just your average person and your average kind of media, your average uh, media company broadcast, you know, news or magazines or whatever? Why does there just not seem to be that much interest in this subject? Have you got any ideas on that? Do you think it's still a hangover from when it was, you know, all ridiculed and they, they 
in intentionally ridiculed from the inside? Do you think it's a hangover from that? Or is it just that maybe people don't want to, don't want to entertain things that's going to, you know, that's uncomfortable, uncomfortable realities? Yeah. I think the media right now is uh, AWOL or in hiatus about this subject for a couple of reasons. One is the people that have the answers are government, intel agencies, things like that. Uh, and the media needs access. Uh, in order to uh, produce stories about government, they need access to people in government. And they don't want to upset that relationship by talking about this subject right now. However, um, I think this will change because of uh, what has been instituted now in this uh, amendment to the RR in the U.S., the National Defense Act, which uh, has a section in it where the intelligence community and the military, the Department of Defense, has to now address the UAP question in some detail. Talk to our Congress in uh, secret meetings, but also have public reports. The first one is going to happen in March of this year, next month. That will probably be a classified briefing as to where we stand with those 144 cases you mentioned uh, that the Navy has admitted to. Um, but what about the other history of UFOs? Um, and again, that should come up in October will be another report, October of this year, another report is due. And part of that is supposed to be public. Mm. And then people like myself and others are going to be pushing for public hearings. I don't expect public hearings this year because we have an election year in the United States and uh, uh, politicians don't want to talk about UFOs in an election year. Nothing uh, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> too controversial. Yeah. Uh, so I don't expect public hearings until next year sometime, if it happens. Uh, but we're going to be pressing for that. I don't see how the Air Force, for example, can avoid speaking to the many, many incidents that have occurred in Air Force facilities. Yeah. Uh, especially if the press starts to push them for answers. So I would encourage any media professionals out there to keep pressing uh our military institutions for uh, answers on uh, on those incidents, like Roswell, like my own, that have happened over the yeah. years, yeah. and just keep pressing, keep pushing for answers. And I, I guess one thing, like on a slightly more positive note, I suppose. I mean, it's been five years approximately since the uh, article that came out in the New York Times that kind of seem to change a little bit the the attitude you know towards this hmm. and i do think i i have noticed personally even news channels that would normally never touch this with a barge pole like they would never mention it even in passing even with you know a smirk hmm. i have noticed more recently some of those channels and those news sites 
have started to you know not much but they've started to 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 kind of delve into right. it a little bit more and gradually and you you see kind of you do see it. I, i'm noticing it i'm noticing the narrative change i'm noticing more people start to be more open to it and start to yeah look at it differently um right and i guess that's all probably part of or potentially part of a, a disclosure right things starting to come to the surface rise to the surface starting to come out um that's right uh there's a you know the ufo community we'll call it a community of people that have been interested in this subject for a long time yeah they know a lot of real information uh information that can be validated uh and they can they will help uh promote these probing questions uh it's just a matter of more people asking those questions and keep pressing for answers so mm. uh if we can keep this momentum going uh it will it will go a long way to eventually getting more media to take this subject more seriously like you said i uh I'm, I'm I'm also seeing more media taking uh, this more seriously in in the United States. I'm thinking of you know the guy on Fox News, um, Tucker Carlson, uh, has, has spoken about it. Um, I myself went on um, uh, a news uh, news station immediately after I gave that press conference uh, last October. Uh, so. I'm going to take every opportunity I can to uh, to keep discussing this. Great. Um, do you think? Let me ask you just directly: Is do you think the U.S. has craft? Do you think the U.S. government has is in possession of craft? Um, I think there have been experimental craft built. Yes. Um, I won't go into why, but I have my reasons. Uh, do you believe they've recovered any, or do you believe they've just built them? Absolutely, own? no question. Yeah. They've so recovered the, so you think they've successfully re-engineered potentially? Well, I, I can't say they've successfully re-engineered a, a craft, yeah. but I, I know they they have built and flown yeah. uh, craft that are able to do some of the things these these objects can do. Yeah, I'm convinced of that. And. What relevance or connection do you think some of the private industries and private aerospace companies, such as you mentioned earlier, Lockheed, Lockheed Martin, Skunk Works, like how influential do you think they could be? Could there be, could we be in a situation where actually they hold some of the keys here and they have some of the information and they well, don't want to give it up through government because <laughs> they want to be compensated financially for that? Is <laughs> exactly. They've got a very close relationship with our military establishment. Obviously, they produce the uh, the weapons of war, the aircraft of war. So um, I don't think they're going to make any, you know, disclosures unless they get the green light from, you know, the DOD or our military. Mm. Uh, I think they're very tight. And uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they've obviously got a lot of space as well to house stuff over there and things like that. Um, so yeah. <laughs> um, 
let me ask you about a couple of other things. So you you said you know about aerial school and and uh, I'm assuming you know about Westall. Like, what do you think of these mass sightings and why don't they seem to get more kind of traction? Why are they more not not more known? Well, again, um, it's a shame to put it this way, but uh, I think most people believe what children say uh, when. Uh, especially when there's repetition, uh, uh, repeatability, this this telling the same story, even though they're uh, interviewed separately. Mm. So I have no doubt that those incidents did occur uh, in Australia and Africa. Yeah. In fact, um, when I spoke in Peru, in uh, I think it was called Ayacucho, Peru, uh, we were welcomed there by the mayor uh, of the city who told us that when he was a child in a school, they had a, a, a mass sighting by the children there. And this was back in uh, probably the, probably the seventies. Uh, so why would the U, uh, UFOs or ETs land at schools? Um, well, Again, these kids are our future, and of course they would want to at least greet them and tell them that they're here, they are real, and they as children are going to grow up and have to deal with them, uh, have to deal with that knowledge, uh, and to give them the message, like you said, yeah, uh, of the nuclear weapons. Uh, so yeah, I think I, I believe them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier, you think abductions, cattle mutilations, you, you think that's legit and you think it's connected. Um, what about crop circles? Yes. Also crop circles. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> of course, so uh, we've all heard that there are people out there that were able to uh, do crop circles uh, on their own, but there are many others uh, uh, where crop circles were made uh, inexplicably uh, very quickly. I'll tell you a quick story. And this happened, um, oh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I was marching in a parade here in my little hometown of Ojai. And this was a Fourth uh, uh, of July parade. Let's see, yeah, Fourth of July parade. And part of the parade was this group of Aztec dancers. They had the uh, you know the feathers and the uh, they all dressed up as Aztec dancers. And they and I was walking with them. Uh, I knew some of them. I had met the group and. Um, and one of them had had this headdress, this Aztec headdress, right, with feathers. Mm -hmm. I took a photo of him. The next day, and this was July the 5th in, in the UK, there was a crop circle. And I don't know if you remember seeing it, but... You can look it up, or I can show you, send you a picture of it. Actually, I'll send you a photograph. All right. Great. I'll put it up. Uh... Uh, uh, and you can put it up. 
but it showed an Aztec headdress. Very, very similar to the one, the photograph that I had taken the day before. Now, okay, so that, <laughs> and I think there was one other incident uh, involving crop circles that I was involved in uh, that convinced me there's something going on where these crop circles are sending messages of some sort to us. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're, they're fascinating. I think they're obviously really easy to kind of close your mind to and dismiss, right? It's, it's easy for somebody to just say, Oh, come on. You know, somebody's just gone and done that. But when you do look into it a little bit deeper, they are quite interesting. I mean, I think, you know, because again, it's like, why you, you know, we kind of anthropomorphize it. Like why, why would, why would they be doing this? What, what are they trying to say to us? Why are they passing messages through the crops? But I, and it could be anything. It could be, you know, passing messages oh. to themselves. It could be like marker, yeah. you know, way, waypoints or something. Well, uh, it, uh, when you think about symbology and communication, let's, let's take communication again. The only reason uh, these natives were able to talk to uh, uh, Lewis and Clark in 1804 is because they had an interpreter with them. Lewis and Clark did. And mm. so they had somebody interpreting their language. Uh, but we don't have interpreters per se to talk to ET. Uh, we don't understand how they communicate. Um, but maybe they think that in the beauty of these circles, and they are beautiful. Some of them are gorgeous, um, very intricate designs, um, uh, mathematically oriented. Uh, maybe they feel that um, this is another way of expressing some form of communication with uh, mm -hmm. to us or with us. Um, so I think that's part of it. Yeah. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Have you ever seen the film arrival? Yes. That's uh, really fantastic. I film. loved it. I loved the yeah. film. Um, yeah. um, again, it, it was, uh, steeped in symbology. Mm. Um, and, uh, Again, it's an attempt at communication. Yeah. So in various ways, I think ET is trying to communicate with us. Um, uh, and maybe we are getting the gist of what they're trying to communicate, and we just don't realize it. Mm. Maybe, maybe humanity is evolving in some way through this communication. Maybe it's subtle. Uh, but maybe we are, let's hope, improving the species in some way as yeah. a result of this communication. Yeah, definitely. Definitely hope for that. It can't get much worse, hopefully. <laughs> um, on the subject of that movie, what's your favorite UFO movie, if you've got one, or UFO ET related to this kind of topic? Just for fun. Uh, uh, I think Close Encounters has to be my favorite because... Um, uh, a lot of, well, not, not a lot, but um, at least some of what was presented actually happened. Yeah. In one way or the, uh, another, uh, I know of, of like the incident where uh, he's parked in front of the railroad tracks, uh, Richard Dreyfus, the actor, and his truck starts shaking like this, right? 
uh, and uh, all the lights go out in the truck, you know, all the electronics go out, electricity. That really happened <laughs> uh, because I've, you know, researched that particular incident. Um, it happened to one of the Air Force people that I've talked to. So, and Sp Spielberg got that from from this. And person. Spielberg got that from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Because I know, because I know a, a lot of it. Yeah, he did speak to a lot of people who had had experiences and things like that. And so, yeah, no. I guess that's why the film ended up being so good. Um, uh, what would you say? You kind of answered it, so maybe it's the same film. Which, if it is, that's fine. But what about the most realistic UFO or ET movie? Would you can say the same one if you want, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the most realistic. The others, um, uh, like E.T., the extraterrestrial, I think is pretty fantastical, uh, even though, um, and, and, and Paul was the funniest, of course. Mm, yeah. Did you see Paul? Yeah, I see that one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I think these extraterrestrials have been captured alive. Uh, at, and so, um, uh, but I don't know how long they've lived, um, but I think that has happened. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I would go back to Close Encounters, I think, is my favorite and also the most realistic. Just to go back to what you just said there about them being captured alive again, um, like, for, I, go, I know you don't know this information, but who like what do you think they are from your best estimations like do, or just even from your gut feeling do you think it's like an interplanetary and inter you know an interstellar civ like civilization or do you think it's because you hear different things right some people have these these hypotheses where they could be um future human or they could be a, a non-human intelligence but an intelligence that's been on this planet you know with us for a long period of time maybe doing their own thing in secret um there's lots of different hypotheses like i say interdimensional things um it could be stuff that's not even physical um i did christopher mellon again i'll mention him the other day he did say in an interview i heard him he said that from his point of view from his opinion the the hypothesis that best fits fits the facts is the the extraterrestrial hypothesis um but yeah what's your gut feeling on that do you think it's as simple as that because to me that almost well, seems like one of the more simple just like uh you know <laughs> just come in from another planet well um <clears throat> i think you you risk um it's a little bit risky to uh start throwing out little things like that uh i've, I've heard uh you know the uh what is Ackham's razor Ackham's razor have you heard that one yeah yeah the the simplest explanation is probably the truth, but he, he, I don't think you can just go with that. Um, uh, let's see, what what was your question again? Let, let's go over that. Just uh, like basically what your gut feeling is in terms of who or what they are, like whether they're an interplanetary oh, okay. kind of biological entities like us, or is it something a bit more well, first of different? All, I think there are multiple species that are visiting Mm -hmm. uh, they are probably working together, um, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but obviously there have been reports uh, by witnesses uh, uh, with different descriptions of what these beings look like. Of course, the most common is the gray, but 
Uh, I wanted to mention the uh, the the incident in Varginha, Brazil, mm. which you may have heard of. I know that J- James Fox, I think, is doing a, a yeah, documentary James on Fox that is, now. It's going to come out is, at some yeah. point. I don't know when. Yeah, but the description of that being uh, does not fit the typical gray description. Can it's you can like, you tell me what that was? The description. Uh, yeah, of that the one. description fits more like I know if you saw. Um, Let's see. The Shape of Water. Did you see mm. that movie? The Shape of Water. No, I should go see that movie, or you can get it on Netflix. I'm sure. On the list, I'll add it to my list. Uh, but there is a a being in there, uh, non-human, uh, with um, uh hard to describe but he's got a big ridge on the top of his head he's got fins he's got uh webbed hands etc but anyway that description of that being in that movie fits closely to what witnesses describe as the Varginha monster mm. the et that escaped a crashed craft in near Varginha, Brazil, which is near Sao Paulo. I think it's not too far from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, and uh, kind of terrorized the little town for a while until he was caught. Uh, so he's one of those that was captured alive. He, I think he died shortly after, but uh, who knows what they were able to get out of him. Yeah. Uh, so I want to mention that. The other thing I wanted to mention, if you go to um, a website called The Alien Project, you'll see these so-called mummies that were recovered uh, near Nazca, the Nazca Plain, um, in, a, in a cave uh, with three fingers. These are all tridactyl. Some of them are very small, 20 inches and other another however is five foot seven but also with three fingers three toes uh i went down to uh, peru and uh reviewed the reports and listened to the presentations of the scientists that have worked on these and let me tell you, there's some convincing evidence. These were real beings. They are not human, and but they were walked upright. Um, they had implants, visible implants, uh, etc. And and one of them had, uh, two of them at least, had three eggs in their abdomen. Uh, so they gave birth through the egg process or as a reptile would give birth with eggs. So, and the skin was reptilian in nature. So That's there's wild, something yeah. else for you to look into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what was that called? What do I have to look for to look into that one? Uh, the alien project, the alien project. Okay. Okay. Again, Just I'll Google that. Um, you should be able to find it. If not, I'll send you the, the link. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll check that one out. That's, uh, yeah, that's wild. (laughs) I mean, this whole topic is wild, isn't it, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. 
So uh, again, there's a lot of species that are visiting. Um, the question is, are they working independently? Are they working together? Uh, do they each have their own agendas? Lots of questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously it's fun to speculate about, but that's all it is, right? Because it's, it's so far beyond our way, any way yeah. we have of knowing it right now. Like, um, and we only have ourselves to compare it to. Like, uh, and I right. think we're a, we're a long way from being team members and working together with another, you know, a, an alien civilization, um, <laughs> which is in essence what could be happening here. So yeah, it's, it is a wild topic. I mean, yeah it's it's you constant i mean even you right that you've accepted the this reality but i'm sure you still get your mind blown fairly regularly on this topic uh, i'm keeping my mind open let's say to yeah. uh what we might discover in the future yeah absolutely um okay let me finish off with uh with it with a question here because i'm conscious i don't want to keep you too long and um, we've already been here a good little while um so excluding your own case and the ones that were directly related, so like the echo flight, um, if you could pick one or for the sake of this, I'll let you, you know, if you, could, if you want to pick a couple, but if you could pick one case um, to present to kind of skeptical, you know, skeptics, people that are really like, eh, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced, convince me. If you could pick one case okay. that, that's not yours, what would it be? It would be the one that happened in the Netherlands. Um 1979, 19, yeah, 1979. Uh, this was at Schosterburg. Um, uh, it's a city. It's also an air base uh, that was used by the um, U.S. Air Force. And in uh, 1979, there was this lady called um, Josie Zwinnenberg. Josie Zwinnenberg. She's public. She's in my book, but um, she was riding her horse near near the base uh, and saw this huge UFO, uh, multicolored, uh, hovering near the base, uh, and and saw it for quite a long time uh, until it disappeared. Uh, but the next day, the next day, a UFO flew right down the flight line of this base, Schosterberg, the Netherlands. It was seen by 12 airmen, both um, um, from the Dutch Air Force and also the U.S. Air Force uh, that was renting parts of that base. Uh, those witnesses went on the radio the next day and told their story and described the craft described it going uh, slowly down the runway, shining again, shining a beam of light. And again, at that time, um, I'm certain there were aircraft stationed there that were capable of carrying nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons. And this is probably the closest base to the, to, uh, the Soviet Union at that time. Wow. Um, so, um, that's a very strong case because of the fact uh, of all the witnesses, uh, credible witnesses, and I've known Josie for a long, long time. Um, all the credible witnesses, including the military witnesses, they can support what I just said. Wow. 
Yeah, that's something. And and that's it's quite fun for me because I've read into hundreds of cases in this subject matter mm-hmm. and I don't think I've ever come across that one. So that's fun. That's great. <laughs> and that says everything about this topic as well, that there are just right. such a wealth and such a ludicrous yeah, amount and, of data. And the only reason I mentioned that is because I know a lot about it. But uh, there are many, many other cases that are uh, very interesting and very credible. And again, because they are supported, they're supportable by documents and witnesses. And all anyone has to do with an open mind is research uh, some of these cases and, and they'll find that that's true and they will come to the same conclusions that, that I have. And that is, this is a real phenomenon. These are extraterrestrial craft uh, because we couldn't possibly build anything that could do what some of these can do. Um, and there it is. It's, it's a simple calculus. Well, we're yeah. have to we're going to have to deal with it. I mean, you say you like having yeah lots of different witnesses at once, and I guess that, again the Nimitz is is like a pretty yeah, good that's one. That's another right? one, of that's course. Like so many people, but yet so many radars and systems at the same time. Um, right. So it really, and I, and I'm assuming there's again more video that we haven't seen. I'm assuming there's more radars that have caught stuff like like the aforementioned u.s uh, air force radars mm-hmm. their extensive capabilities that have apparently not really picked up anything um i'm assuming there's a lot more but there's already a yeah a lot on that that limits encounters um look to round us out today robert do you want to leave a kind of a brief message for anybody watching or listening just a few words it doesn't have to be about anything in particular it doesn't have to be about this topic you can just wish people a nice day whatever you want to say um the floor is yours (laughs) (laughs) well thank you um ben for having me on uh it's been fun talking to you um i guess what I'd, i'd like to say is that um we will be finding out more about this subject of UFOs, UAPs in the future. Um, I'm encouraged by the progress that has been made to uh, require our Defense Department intelligence agencies to uh, research this subject and report back to the public. It's going to take time and it's going to take pressure by the public um, to get more information out of our governments, but they have that information. They need to release it to the public so that we can all engage in this subject intelligently. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful it will happen, especially if we can have open hearings on this subject and especially if the United Nations takes up this topic as a serious one. Uh, and uh, so, uh, this is not fantasy land. It's not uh, a sci-fi movie. This is real. And we'll be learning more about it in the future. Awesome. I can't wait to, to learn more. You know, I'm sure you're the same. I can't wait to hear uh, more stuff about this because it is such a huge topic. One of the biggest that we'll ever face. Um, thank you so much for today, Robert. This was awesome. It was so good to hear your stories firsthand and, uh, and talk about the whole thing. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate you. Take care. Thank you, you too. Thanks for listening to that conversation with Robert Salas. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Please check out the links in the description to find out more about Robert and his story and to be able to follow this podcast. There's plenty more UFO content coming up soon, so please subscribe to be notified of it. Be nice, be happy, be cool.